0: Yeah, I don't know man, you yeah, ever just feel like
1: life. Just- Welcome to extended clip episode eighty eight. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm J.T White. and our guest uh, this week we're doing something a little different rather than just jumping right into a double feature. we uh, wanted to fuse the two styles of guests that we've had. you know, we had our interview with Cave and we have our friends join us for the double features. Here we'll do a little bit of both. Uh, we have an author. A film critic. Uh, if you are on Letterboxd and you listen to this show, you probably follow him. Uh, he's calling in from Calgary, uh, another friend north of the border, and he has a new book coming out called Shelter for the Damned. It's Mike Thorne.
2: Hey, nice to see you guys.
1: Uh, we are so glad to have you on. I, I have to say, I think the the extended clip scholars can double check this, but there has to be a time in the last year and a half where we've read from a Letterboxed log of yours on the pod, because we do cite some of our favorite critics often. And I feel like, uh, we should just say thank you right away for your service (laughs) in the arts and, uh, in, in your enthusiasm for horror. And so, yeah, everyone who's listening should definitely follow Mike on letterboxd.
2: Super flattered. Thanks guys. I mean, uh, I see myself as like a student of the genre and uh, and, and a nerd above all else, but that is <laughs> that is very kind of you to say. So thanks.
1: Um, so we want to talk about Shelter for the Damned first. Uh, this is Mike's new horror novel. JT, uh, you you were just raving to this, raving to me about this as you strutted through my door today.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was really I, I I loved it. It was a great book. I am not someone who I feel like I always look to horror for films but I'm not much of a horror genre reader and so this was something taking like a step out of what I normally read and it was really fantastic just the mindset and uh, getting in, into some teenage violence is yeah. very good.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah, as juvenile delinquents ourselves, it was uh, important <laughs> to see ourselves forever. <laughs>
0: Got us riled up. Very good.
1: I, I know that you're a big Stephen King head, but outside of horror novels, uh, what like what writers inspired you in this one?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a really terrific question. Um, I mean, the two primary influences on this novel I don't think would uh classically qualify as horror writers that the two people i turned to the most were hubert selby jr and jim thompson um mainly for the way they translate their protagonists um kind of distorted points of view or the way they um come uncomfortably close to the interiority of of really um tortured protagonists so those two writers they don't write about adolescent characters, but I was interested in bringing the style of someone like Selby or Thompson to like a, an adolescent character in the suburbs. Um, and I mean, my favorite writer is Herman Melville and I, I, you know, Moby Dick, just as a study of obsession to me, that's the ultimate literary study of obsession. So that book is always clattering around somewhere in my mind, too.
1: Yeah, Moby Dick. Uh, I got to read it someday. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. <laughs> um, I, I, I find it's that fun. interesting what you say, though, about like how interior those authors are with those characters, like the tortured protagonists, because, yeah, this isn't something I see in a lot of, you know, adolescent Uh, kind of characters it almost reminded me of more pulpy like film noir type voiceover uh, in terms of the interiority of the character and like the raw aggression and kind of the very dark feelings that are uh, front and center on display that are going through the character's heads so it, it was really like delightful to see that kind of Still within the very playful juvenile delinquent uh, Milieu that's set up before the horror fully comes uh, aboard. Yeah. Thank you Also, I wanted to ask you about the time period. So this takes place early 2000s, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, I I actually didn't when I submitted the manuscript the time period wasn't specified but Hmm. Had a conversation with my managing editor at journal stone scarlet algae and and we were talking about the fact that you know there aren't really any references to cell phones or social media in this novel and to me it was always clear that i was writing a kind of horror infected version of the suburbs that i remembered from my adolescence so um i said should we just have a title card in the opening of the, the novel just to situate the reader and she said yeah that's a good idea people might be wondering why do none of these kids have cell phones or you know <laughs> like, TikTok or anything like that <laughs> so
1: i i actually find that like Shocking that you didn't like write it with the 2000s in mind. I think maybe you growing up in that era may have just baked it into your mind uh, because it feels very deeply embedded in that. And my, my question was regarding kind of uh, the double feature that we're going to talk about, uh, because I feel like the 50s and the 2000s are two very distinct eras for, like, uh, youth movies and culture and, like, you know, these very conservative cultures that are just begging for uh, rebellious youth, kind of. And, of course, our double feature is going to be I Was a Teenage Werewolf from 1957 and uh, Larry Clark's Ken Park from 2002. So, I don't know, do you see any parallels from, like, the classic, like, youth movies of the 50s to Ken Park and other stuff from the Bush era?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in in identifying a kind of conservative milieu that is um, repressive to um, teenage identity. I, I was a teenage werewolf, is interesting because, as far as I know, it's the first film to ever have the word teenage in the title, and and the emergence of teenagers as a concept really, from 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 my understanding, comes to fruition in the 1950s. You know, with with um, and, and really in a cinematic context with movies like rebel without a cause, which was also a big influence on this book.
1: Of course. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. And then, yeah, the early two thousands, I mean, I I was, I was a teenager at that time. I was about Mark's age in 2003. So um, that, that it definitely was the, the environment and the world that I knew that I was writing about Um, in terms of social parallels? That's a good question. I mean, in, in an American context, the Bush administration, I think, um, lended itself to some really uh, brutally, um, brutally dangerous uh, cinematic art in America specifically, but also worldwide. I mean, like there was in terms of the horror genre, there was really exciting stuff happening in France. And in Asia, and then in America, of course, there were people like Eli Roth and Rob Zombie. Um, so I think the, the, the stuff that was happening in the horror genre in the early 2000s bleeds into this novel. And I have to also shout out Final Destination, uh, the very kind Jeffrey Reddick <laughs> gave me such a such a generous blurb for this novel and and honestly final destination is an influence here too so
1: oh there's no you know it's funny i've never seen a final destination movie and i still feel them as like part of my story with horror as a genre is just growing up with those movies coming out and me being scared of the trailer even uh, the other era that I think about alongside the Bush era in the 50s maybe more directly tied to the 50s is the 80s which of course is you know the the decade for the slasher which is you know, for someone who's been to both horror and teen movies you know that's kind of the perfect mix of the two right there so I feel like those kind of three decades of, of youth cinema in particular kind of have that strange linkage of like yeah, just rebelling against a conservative culture and then finding the the brutal truths that lay beneath, kind of.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely.
1: And, and so you grew up in Calgary as well?
2: I did, yeah. I was born in a small Alberta town called Drayton Valley, but my family moved before I was old enough to remember. So for all intents and purposes, I've been in Calgary pretty much my whole life. And it's all, it's also a very um, politically conservative um, province, Alberta. So I think uh, the conservatism and, and this kind of uh, really uh, tunnel vision focus on business, specifically oil and oil and gas industry within the province, I think led was part of what led to me feeling kind of alienated and like an outsider. Hmm. Um, because I I wanted to you know stay inside and write weird stories and draw monsters and <laughs> and I, there there weren't many kids like me growing up that I that I knew really.
1: And this is such a broad topic, but I guess it's kind of the idea of being both a fan and an artist and having kind of both references and like intertextuality actually coming into the the mechanics of the plot or whatever but uh you know people people seem to complain about that let's say in the films of tarantino or someone like that but i i feel like there's a lot of pleasure in your novel in let's say i think it's scott's dad who is a big horror fan and talks about you know argento and
2: Oh, Adam's dad. Uh, Adam's
1: dad. Sorry. Uh, Adam's dad no des- describes a movie where someone fucks a corpse. And uh, <laughs> there's the very, uh, like <laughs> the, there's like a nod to like an Alice Cooper sweatshirt very early on too. And it, it's clear that you have fun, like including things that either influenced you or that you enjoy uh, in the book. And and I took pleasure in that too, just having read you as a critic and then seeing these things in your fiction. But I don't know, how do you feel about that in general, both as an artist and as you know a fan of films and literature?
2: That's also a really good question. Um, I mean, it, this is something I've been thinking about a little bit because I'm going to be uh, appearing on a podcast to discuss another one of my key influences in a couple weeks, um, Wes Craven. Mm. Um, and I think with the arrival of Scream, um, this this idea of extra textuality or uh, meta-awareness, it, it kind of became inevitable. I feel like the horror genre, especially horror cinema, has not escaped from under the shadow of Scream, even still. Um, and I think Final Destination was a really interesting and brilliant response to what that film was doing because it just kind of dissolved the figure of the slasher villain altogether and just got down to the core of what the, the subgenre was doing. And it said, what we're really afraid of is death. Um, And, and uh, but, you know, with with those kinds of developments in the genre, I think um, it would, it would be like um, disingenuous of me not to make those kinds of references because they're embedded in, in the world that I'm participating in and that these kids are participating in. So it's, it's also a matter of realism. Yeah. It's, it, it's sort of, to some extent reminds me of um an argument stephen king used to have with critics where they they would take issue with his use of brand names in his in his work um and he would say well when you open your medicine cabinet do you just see a bunch of blank white bottles without names (laughs) you know like these these things are just kind of um, part of our world, for yeah. better or worse. Yeah, it's so, not Repo
1: Man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it seems like a weird thing to take issue with. But people are like, why do you, you always <laughs> <specific>? <laughs> brand names?
1: It's yeah, if really anything, weird. it's just more specificity. I mean, obviously, there's people like Tarantino to go out of their way to have characters give monologues about movies and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but for the most yes. part, I do take pleasure in the specificity of, uh, of a reference point for I don't know, it's just, like, part of the author's perspective as well as the world that they're building.
0: It's kind of interesting to see how, like, horror unfolds kind of after the post-Scream kind of self-awareness thing because then, like, you kind of transition into, like, uh, found footage which is kind of, like, aiming for, like, this ultra-realism, like, trying to make it feel like this actually happened. And then you kind of get, like, kind of the more reserved, you know, quote-unquote elevated horror films kind of, you know, towards in the 2010s. And it's kind of just interesting how... Uh, I don't know. Different people make horror films. They are kind of responding to the prompt that Scream set forth.
1: Also, even just like as a prelude to Scream, because Mike, I really like what you said about how the metatextual aspect is like. It was inevitable, you know, uh, for this genre, and I feel like something like In the Mouth of Madness, which is a year, two years before Scream, 94 to 96 or something like that. Uh That one, John Carpenter, you know, going as metatextual uh, as he possibly can, uh, feels like that even is him. Like, you know, not that they're running out of stories to tell, but that they're looking inward rather than outward, I guess. And that results in stuff like In the Mouth of Madness Scream. I mean, we did a triple feature, Mike, on Halloween of meta horror, and it was... In the Mouth of Madness, uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and uh, uh, Last House on Dead End Street, uh, which oh, are kind of yeah. yeah three meta takes from different eras. But yeah, I, I think that inevitability is a very interesting point, and I feel like uh with all the you know god shoot me if i ever say end of history one more time on this podcast but with that uh late 90s into the early 2000s feeling it d- it does feel like our our media was just like marching toward this inevitable end where now we just have whatever it is we have now of recycled sludge kind of
2: yeah no that's a really good point i mean and, and i'm glad uh i i uh what sorry was it jt who was talking about found footage following no, that was was Wal-
4: no was Malcolm. Malcolm.
2: JT. malcolm malcolm um yeah so th- this this i i think blair witch project as well just in terms of like these massive event films i think scream and blair witch are still the two films which we have not we haven't seen um anything that has matched those films in terms of cultural impact and i think that's partially because of the way we consume media now um but i also think that those films signal something about yeah that that death of history uh phenomenon that eddie is talking about and i think you see this in the popular music of the late 90s and early 2000s too, which um i i I also frankly was was an influence on the novel you know Mm. people like um marilyn manson are thinking about um this idea of amalgamating and mutating Different forms of media into this kind of apex of shock, and you can't shock anymore beyond that. Yeah. Um,
1: also, the postmodernism of all those genre mashups that are coming at the time. I mean, the internet is like just the expansion of mashup music, and of course, fucking rap rock and rap metal, which <laughs> peaked in that yeah. era as well. And new metal, yeah. of course, kind of being in line with that. Another kind of just postmodern mix em up of genres where just results in this very strange creature of music. <laughs>
2: yes absolutely and it becomes a kind of um uh, a kind of flattening as well or a kind of defanging of any sort of ideologically resistant music if you can defang rap and punk and metal all simultaneously and repackage them into this uh corporate context even though a lot of the music was very abrasive in terms of content um it became uh very sleek and commercial Mm -hmm. in a strange way um yeah, it's a, it's
0: an interesting era yeah i I remember because I've, I've done a lot of studies on Fred Durst right wrote, yes. wrote about his filmmaking but um mm. I also just like looking like in interviews he said like he made limp Bizkit as like revenge for kids not liking like the cure and the Smiths <laughs> or something like that which is very strange oh, yeah. and kind of like yeah it speaks to like kind of you know kind of like the sleek commercialism like maybe Durst really wanted to make you know music like Morrissey but uh yeah he went into uh, his limp biscuit phase
1: everything you tell me about Fred Durst just unlocks another door <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I mean I I like limp biscuit honestly yeah
0: I know I listen to I listen to some songs often and I, I like the fanatic he's he's a talented guy he's a talented yeah. guy
1: yeah definitely an interesting odd tour even if you know i'm, I'm not going to go back and listen to hot dog water uh, anytime soon is that sorry i forgot what the album's called
0: it's i mean it's something like that okay. it's like starfish something it's a I don't know
1: okay <laughs> chocolate
2: starfish and the hot dog flavored water thank you mike <laughs> thank you mike i'm sorry i really don't
1: <laughs> want to disrespect the new metal heads out there i feel like our podcast probably has more new metal fans than most podcasts
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i don't know man you ever just feel like life is just
4: Every fat cats with bloated ego. We are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip.
1: Alright, and we're back on Extended Clip. Uh as I said earlier, the double feature. I was a Teenage Werewolf, 1957, by Gene Fowler Jr. And Ken Park, the 2002 film by Larry Clark and uh, Edward Lackman, written by Harmony Korine. Got to get as many credits mm. in on that one as you can. Uh, Mike, why, why was it these two films uh, that you picked out to bring onto the podcast?
2: Um, it was a combination of films that deal directly with uh, teenage rage um, and also the suburban settings. And Ken Park is very close to the time period that uh, my novel is set in. Shelter for the Damned is set in 2003 and Park came out in 2002. Um, and, and I was a teenage werewolf. I think it's just a really important early um, entry in the teen suburban horror genre. And it's it's a film I've always really loved.
0: Uh, yeah, I was really happy when you brought this uh, double feature to the pod, Mike, because, you know, uh, I, I, it kind of uh, made me realize a connection in, like, Larry Clark's filmmaking. And I, I watched the interview with him, and he kind of said this, you know, what I'm thinking here is that, like, Larry Clark really did kind of model his movies after, I don't know, like, the troubled teenager movies of the 50s more mm-hmm. than people realize. And it's kind of... I mean, this episode's kind of a part two to a double feature we did uh, last year, episode 55, The Real Rebeller, um <laughs> 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 where uh, we did Rebel Without a Cause and Bully by Larry Clark. So this is kind of a, a round two of that.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was waiting to bring that up. Malcolm kind of pr- uh, predated your programming with his own double feature mm. last year. Very topical title there, talking about uh, <laughs> <laughs> the short-lived uh, conservative film outlet, rebeller. But anyway, back to the, uh, this double feature. JT, how did you take to these movies?
3: Oh, I loved it. I always like when we're able to get angry with the teens, and I was really taken aback by um, like Teenage Werewolf in particular, because it's like, I don't know, with... Like B horror of that era, I feel like formally, uh, like some of them won't be as nearly as accomplished as mm-hmm. this is, and just like right from the get go with like just throwing you into the fight, they're doing a lot of really fun stuff with the camera work here, and uh, it was great.
4: Come on, Tommy, cut it out. Come on
1: Yeah, this one, the intro really just throws you right into it. I was kind of reminded of the kind of breakneck intro of Robert Altman's The Delinquents, one of his uh, very earliest features. Uh, Which also just like has this extremely explosive intro to throw you into this, you know, youth aggressive mind state. Uh, But on this, we open on this extremely kinetic fist fight here at a Rockdale High. And you get these crazy, like, you know, close ups and point of view shots cut together very quickly. It's very, you know, scrappy B movie filmmaking, but the kind that feels like it's held together. By just like, I don't know, B-movie magic kind of (laughs) like that. That first fight scene is really fantastic. Um, But to go over the movie on the whole, Michael Landon is the lead. He plays Tony and uh, he's a teen who's, uh, you know, he's going through some issues. You got anger and authority and he's living with a single dad, you know, working class single dad in an apartment Uh, Girl trouble, you know, all all the classic stuff, all the classic uh, causeless, rebellious youth stuff uh, of the 1950s. And after seeing a psychologist who has a certain uh, primal fetish, primal fascination, uh, he becomes a werewolf. And halfway through this film, it kind of goes from being this very angsty teen movie into the B horror that it promises, with the werewolf uh, hunting down women and the cops hunting down the werewolf. And uh, it's a it's a fantastic film. I had a really great time with it, Mike. uh, So you said you'd had this one as a favorite for a long time. You 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 know uh, did you? this wasn't even on dvd i I recall did you like have a tape of this movie a long time ago
2: i think i must have first rented it on tape yeah yeah it's hard to find now it's too bad i mean someone should do a reissue um maybe it's a rights problem or something it's quite easy to find online thankfully but it could use some cleaning up i think there's some yeah really striking imagery in this film
1: absolutely so yeah, after this opening fight, uh you know, Tony is recommended a psychologist by this kind of school counselor cop kind of guy. Uh, and very quickly all of the all of the pieces of the drama are kind of set up as this is a very snappy, you know seventy five eighty minute uh B movie. And when we say easily accessible online, it is on YouTube. I think that's where. Uh, that's where I watched it at least because the, the torrent that I found of a DVD did not look much better. It looked like it was yeah. sourced from a tape as well.
0: I, yeah, I downloaded it and I compared the YouTube version and I was like, oh yeah, this is basically yeah. the same thing. But yeah, I, <laughs> you know, I was really, cause you know, I think maybe as viewers back in the fifties were caught off guard a little bit, you know, I was caught a little off guard. I was like, oh dang, this is really like a social issues, you know, teenage angst movie, mm-hmm. you know. F- first and foremost, and then you kind of get to the horror. But that being said, when the horror comes, like it is very like well done and like it really does indulge in that genre. It's not like uh, it's using its horror premise to like get, you know, to make a teen angst movie instead. It's really balancing those concepts and having that concept come out in a horror way. And like, yeah, the opening fight, I mean, that's, you know, that's better footage than uh, the Conor McGregor fight people watched (laughs) and paid for. The other day. Dad, I don't know. I had to get that that topical, The topical, <laughs> <a> topical <laughs> reference from yeah. Malcolm.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love how committed this is to being kind of a teen uh, social issues movie, especially with Tony having a single father who has to go work a night shift and he lives in this, you know, small apartment. It's very much very much the B side of something like Rebel Without a Cause which you know has the classic nuclear family that was so promoted in the 50s and is in the beautiful cinemascope frames that Nick Ray so masterfully composes this one as I said it's the very scrappy B movie uh, making approach and you're in this like dank apartment and then you go to this Halloween party that's at some sort of apartment building rec center I'm guessing <laughs> uh, which is a fantastic scene I, I, love I really that. love That scene.
0: This movie, yeah, this movie is such a raw b side. Uh, The main character is eating raw hamburger for dinner. That's implied (laughs) at (laughs) one point. I mean, and the the party scene. Oh my god! I mean. Uh, just to you know speak you know there's good filmmaking aspects of it of course but we have to talk about the freestyle (laughs) (laughs)
4: Uh,
1: uh,
0: uh, uh, (laughs) that's one of the most out of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) so
1: before he's like hot dogging on the bongos though that guy he's like (laughs) showing off how good he is at the bongos this side character this blonde kid who like is just not even dancing with his date at the party because he got a hold of the bongos and he's having such a good time That, that was so funny. I, I really, yeah. I, I can't say enough how great that Halloween party is.
0: This is how to have a good wholesome time. You know, no none of that drugs, no junk at the party. You know, you play the bongos. You know, you you prank you prank some people. You prank girls at the party, yeah, and you freestyle. This it's, is
1: back when trick or treat like the trick actually had a meaning. Everyone's just pulling tricks on each other the whole party, uh, just a one upmanship of pranks until it hits a tipping point. And Tony does not want to be the end of that prank. And uh, he just mercilessly oh beats the God. shit out of his friend uh, with, you know, just as much brute force as that opening fight, which was not a mock fight. That, that felt like a real classic fight. This is just like messing around with your homies. has got way out of control <laughs> uh what what, a, what an incredible tonal shift uh fowler jr is able to pull off i say that is strange because i've never seen another film by this director but very accomplished i have to say the teenage
2: yeah. frankenstein is good too mm. uh released the same year if i'm not mistaken oh okay um, yeah yeah and and i mean it's it's sort of a, a riff on the same idea I, i've only seen that one once but it's 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 solid as well
1: nice i'll have to check that one out too yeah so the freestyle it's a song that you you see it in the credits teased so I was like how is this going to have a musical number incorporated but the song is called Eenie Meenie Miny Mo and we will drop it in here for the listeners the lyrics
0: are kind of ahead of his time he's talking you know it's kind of about what I'm hearing in like rap music today it's about you know you want your you know the woman you're with to be you know financially stable you know what I mean you don't want any you know people in unreliable situations so to speak (laughs)
4: my mo, i want a gal with a lot of dough when i find her we're gonna swing up to the preacher with the wedding ring tell me where she is cause i don't know so eeny meeny my mo i've been looking all over town but so far she ain't been around someday i'll meet her and then i'll say she baby, baby be, we're on our way hurry up now and follow me but don't forget to bring your dough <laughs> baby
1: he is all about his bag that is for sure <laughs> and uh this party though results in tony having to see a psychiatrist and that's when you get this little aside with the assistant to the psychologist just like what what are you doing what what are you putting in that tube man and uh, it's pretty funny how just straight up evil this psychologist
3: is yeah i mean that's mm-hmm. you were mentioning the tonal shifts in this i love the The psychiatrist—that's more of like a like just a crazy Nazi doctor. Yeah, like especially coming like off of like the like post-war, just like you like the U.S. taking uh, German scientists to Mm. use them for their own good. That's really the vibes I got from him because he's Mm. like talking about like regress. He's like, you need to regress to the past for progress in the future. Just spewing that kind of shit, and it's like. I don't know, it's it's obviously like silly like He was too, on that
0: but... uh, Cernovich gorilla mindset. Show. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna yeah, I was gonna say that's ultra trad lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we gotta go back to being animals.
1: <laughs> but that does imply that they would believe in evolution too. So that's um, like the strange, you know, the godless traditionalism. Very strange.
0: <laughs> this science stuff. Very yeah. strange.
1: <laughs> it is, I gotta say, man.
4: What is the plan? Through hypnosis. I'm going to regress this boy back. Back into the primitive past that lurks within him. I'm going to transform him and unleash the savage instincts that lie hidden within. And then? Then I'll be judged a benefactor. Mankind is on the verge of destroying itself. The only hope for the human race is to hurl it back into its primitive dawn, to start all over again. Mike,
1: you've seen more of... You know, both teen movies and fifties horror than I have is the introduction of psychology and stuff like that. Kind of a common thread running through it in the in this era.
2: That's, uh, um, I, I mean, you start to see some threads of uh, psychology and psychiatry in the nineteen forties. Mm. More, more, more of the seeds of um, the mad scientist subgenre, though, are, are planted in the forties than. Than anything. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I would have to do more research into that. Actually, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. Um, I do think there are certain things about the psychiatrists theories that echo some of the like Karloff mad scientist films of the 40s, like this idea that uh, since mankind is on the verge of destroying itself, we must bring it back to its primitive dawn, he says, Um yeah, I, I, I find that idea really interesting as well, though, because the film uh, seems to imply that there is this trace of uh, an animal anteriority inside all humans, which I love. To me, this um, signals some of the things I love best about the horror genre, the way it can act as an affront to Enlightenment ideals, um, that that uh, human knowledge is is... The supreme is the be-all and the end-all, when uh, the horror genre offers, I think, sometimes a a beautiful, I call it humiliation of the human, and this film kind of brings in some of those ideas. That's something I really love about the horror genre, and that I think is, is at work here.
1: Also, another thing about this as a werewolf movie, because I also have not seen too many werewolf movies. Uh, Dave Kerr describes this as like a metaphor for puberty, the werewolf stuff. And after reading that, it uh, immediately had to re re reevaluate the movie through mm-hmm. that lens. Uh, as Dave Kerr's review says, uh, "Lycanthropy is equated with puberty in one of the strangest sexual metaphors ever put on screen." <laughs> um, I think what he's getting at is very interesting. Uh, if you read it fully as a metaphor, because of his you know obvious struggles with sexuality and with the ladies early on uh and then of course as a werewolf just you know watching this woman uh practice gymnastics before uh you know attacking her it It, it definitely makes sense in a very you know dark reading of puberty and (laughs) and i mean
3: some of the injection scenes that are happening are really sort of like homoerotic where he's Mm. like There are, like, close-ups on the eyes and, like, the boys just glistening there, like, sweating in the chair. There's a match cut from the injection to a cop pointing at the map with
1: the pointer. Uh, And it was a very strangely, like, fetishistic close-up of the injection, uh, you know. And so that cut really, like, took me aback a little bit. Uh, Also, yeah, you get a really great point-of-view shot. Returning to the point-of-view shot from that first fight uh, in the first werewolf kill that I just alluded to where he's watching this young woman do gymnastics and just kind of creeping in the back of the gymnasium. Yeah. Uh, very creepy scene. Very well done.
0: Yeah, the kind of like subtle mise-en-scene there, how he's just kind of very like small in the frame and how like the the bell and the fire, uh, not a hydrant extinguisher, yeah. like kind of are, are over him and it, yeah, it just it it's almost, I mean, it's scarier than the werewolf stuff there. Just kind of see him like getting shocked by the bell and just mm. kind of You know, not realizing, you know, the inner wolf inside of him as (laughs) as Dave Kerr's kind of dark reading of manhood, (laughs) uh, you know, comes out of him.
2: (laughs) Oh, no, I just wanted to say, I think you guys have raised two interesting things this film is doing with werewolf mythology. One of them is that um, as far as I can tell, there's no full moon rule in effect Mm. in this film. It seems that, uh, yeah, the werewolf um, transformations seem to only take effect when quote unquote, the evil eye is upon him. And I, I, I actually, I think I, I agree with Kerr's review uh, to some extent, because I think all werewolf stories are um, to some degree about sexual repression. I mean, definitely mm-hmm. The Wolfman from 1941 is, is uh, very overtly about sexual repression. Um, and I mean, in, in, in terms of uh, teenage werewolf films, I think that could also be informed by, uh, you know, something like Ginger Snaps has changed the way we look at werewolf movies, which is very much about a young woman's um, movement into puberty. So maybe he's kind of like retroactively imposing that onto this film. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's I mean, it's also worth noting that this young woman that he's ogling in the gym was apparently a playboy centerfold. So the the film was really leaning into, I think, the audience's awareness of the the kind of sexual tension of that scene. And it's nice. a really... It's a really sexual scene for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, I, I would say more like De Palma than anything else that I could think of. The voyeuristic oh. pleasure, uh, pure Mulvey visual pleasure of voyeurism, <laughs> just watching a woman and then destroying her. Uh, it's, yeah. it's so bleak, but it's also so well done that it lures you in perfectly for that.
0: All our faces lit up very brightly when you said that the gymnasium woman was a playboy uh, centerfold, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> like, whoa! Yeah, the one benefit of not going on
1: video on this call is not saying the reaction to the, the insight. <laughs> it becomes this strange thing, kind of calling back to the youth movie. It becoming like a scene of humiliation more than anything else, because all of these people are in the gymnasium now, watching him maul her and then make his escape, recognizing him because of his jacket too. Uh, and it's, it's kind of embarrassing the way that it would be in like a teen movie in a different kind of scenario as well as horrifying. And I, I think the mix of genres here is really effective in that regard.
0: No. Yeah. I mean, even like what he wears is like kind of representing that kind of balance that the movie is trying to go for kind of, you know, I haven't seen a werewolf movie where the werewolf is clothed <laughs> <laughs> for the entire time. You know yeah. what I mean? So, Cause, uh, you know but it really does give it that kind of teenish boyish look to a werewolf to where yeah you still get that vulner vulnerability about him
1: there's a torch lit you know wolf hunt the the town bends together and as i said it's kind of the, the second half is kind of split between tracking uh tony as a werewolf and the the hunt for him that the town and the police go on um the the torch lit hunt in the woods is really fantastic even in this terribly muddled quality uh you know if only the blacks were that much stronger in an hd copy or whatever but hey i'm sure people have been watching beaten up prints of this for years as well <laughs> they're in your stripes <laughs> yeah exactly mm-hmm. uh, but it is really fantastic just seeing that you know torch lit hunt for him that he just very narrowly escapes before you know, going back to the doctor who like gives him another injection, he like transforms one more time, then just mauls the doctor and the assistant. That final action s- scene between them before the cops show up is so great—the way he just like throws the medical equipment across the room and is just really showing off his strength for the first time because the rest of the movie is like. I don't know, he's overpowering people,
0: but it's not like superhuman strength necessarily. Yeah. No, yeah, it gets real brutal towards the end. I mean, in that kind of uh woods chase, there's an insane fight he he has with a dog, you know what I mean? This Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, pretty brutal for the time. I wasn't expecting uh it to, you know, be so harsh, kind of harsher than some of the stuff, you know, we see the dog stuff we see in Ken Park. Yeah. And uh <laughs> and um mm-hmm. yeah, it's just kind of a a whiplash of a movie and kind of a yeah. When a, of course, you know the classic. uh, If someone th- he dies at the end, yeah, right? the, yeah. The, cops the cops shoot, cops him, shoot yeah. him. Yeah, that's a very classic B movie ending. You know, just he dies and then yeah, we don't it. have to worry about yeah. him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: streets are safe now. <laughs>
2: no silver bullets necessary
1: yeah Yeah. exactly in i guess uh robin wood's classic dichotomy that would make this a regressive horror movie because everything returns to the the status quo but i i think in almost every other way it would be read as quite progressive for its time at least in terms of how much attention it's paying to its youth I don't know, and we're kind of just wrapping up final thoughts here, Uh, and Mike will give it each a rating on a scale of one to five silver bullets uh, for this werewolf episode. I I think that the attention that's paid to the youth here is as strong as almost any of the youth pictures I've seen. It's not as masterful as something like Nick Ray's uh, Rebel Without a Cause, obviously, but it just appeals to the other side. It's the other side of the coin. It, it's, it's less, uh, or it's more willing to show the depravities that are really on display in youth rebellion. And, uh, I, I just thought it was really fantastic. I'm going to go four bullets on this one. Or about you, Malcolm?
0: Yeah. I'm going to go four bullets as well. I mean, yeah, I, everything about this movie kind of like, y- you know, even aside from its subject matter, just kind of like the tone and like, different things it's playing with it so you get a grab bag of stuff here i mean the party scene i feel like for a good five minutes it's just hilarious good hijinks good fun get a good chunk of like you know analyzing the teens you know social ills then you get some good horror filmmaking you know some i like the werewolf costume i like I lot like, you know and just some some subtly you know good formal decisions you yeah. know like uh i think that one shot where um kind of like the we see the werewolf pov shot and then it kind of fades to black oh it's, yeah that's good that's that's some great stuff and there's
1: an, also in the transformations to a werewolf just the very basic like uh old school lap dissolve from his face to his face as a werewolf always mm-hmm. looks awesome in this
0: yeah and you know just you know just an, another good note for smaller movies like this just the acting was on point you know no one was you know too goofy you know yeah, so, exactly um so yeah for four silver bullets <laughs> JT, what do you think? Um, I'm also pumping four bullets right into
3: that teenager's chest. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, this was great. I mean, I think I liked it for a lot of very similar reasons, like the way it blends the the boundaries between the teen movie and uh, the horror movie. I think like, I mean, it just does that in a sense where it's like very playful and fun, but also aggressive and bleak. Um, In an interesting way. I mean, 50% of like the notes that I took of this movie were just like me writing down fun slang that was happening. (laughs) Um, And it was just, I don't know, a really enjoyable time
1: uh mike any any final thoughts on i was a teenage werewolf and a rating
2: um i mean it's it's a it's a personal favorite so i've got to give it all five of the silver bullets i just have to has a special place in my heart i guess uh one thing i would mention uh, another tie it has to ken park is the way um the conditions of the suburbs play into the horror i was i was talking to um uh, Danny Goldhaber, the director of Cam, about my novel, and he said an interesting phrase that I keep coming back to. He said, "The issue with the suburbs is that they impose normalcy, not harmony." Um, and I think there are a lot of interesting in, in moments in I Was a Teenage Werewolf that gesture to that. Like, um, I think it's the protagonist's father who says, "There's no reason you can't have a full normal life if," and he can't finish the sentence, and the, the protagonist says, "If I adjust." So there's this imposition that he has to he has to become a, a certain uh, model, a certain um, archetype that doesn't match who he is. Um, and ultimately, I think that's although in plot terms, it's not actually what makes him monstrous. It's what makes him monstrous before the, the doctor's uh, involvement. So a um, little bit of a rambling answer, but, <laughs> but silver bullets to this one.
1: No, it's OK. I wanted to. See, yeah. uh he, he even says – his dad even says to him, you got to bow to authority. It was At his uh, yes. girlfriend's – the girlfriend's Oh, the, the girlfriend's, girlfriend's – yeah, the girlfriend's dad. But that's rather. so classic. So like, yeah, I, I loved yeah. how confrontational <laughs> the girlfriend's dad is there.
0: He, you know,
1: Look, taking on my daughter, why don't you come come inside and pick her
0: up? <laughs> why don't you be normal? Why don't you act a little better around me? No, that, that, that was great because that, that's like kind of like um, – like kind of like alternative music, music video style, dad, suburban yeah. dads, like you have to bow to authority. <laughs> Good stuff.
1: We'll be right back on extended clip.
4: Burns of a young girl and especially a pretty one like Arlene, I like to feel proud of the young man that takes her out. Young man who keeps busy with the right kind of things. Like sprinkle a lawn, take that out short a paper. Video out, all is going
2: to be a live boxes. fire of the VWG round solid silver bullet. This solid silver round is .999 plus solid silver. It is placed above 30 grains of triple F black powder and a felt wad on top. Here we are,
4: ground chamber, ready to fire.
1: and we're back on extended clip it's malcolm in the middle everybody's favorite segment uh malcolm did you watch anything noteworthy recently
0: yeah you know i watched house on the edge of the park by rigoro diodato and you know it kind of got me thinking a lot of a lot of movies where you know there's like instructions to where you could locate a house you know you got where's where's the friends house classic Kiristami. <laughs> you got house um <laughs> You know with the obayashi you got last house on the left with craven and last house on dead end street with roger watkins so um it's kind of interesting that you see that trend there and then you got the house tv show of course but um wow but um
3: george
1: carlin mode there
0: You know what? Last house on Dead End
1: Street. House with Hugh Laurie here.
0: I just want regular house. You know, where you got regular house. <laughs> Dennis Leary. Um But I I I really like this movie. And you know, um <laughs> It's about uh you have David Hess, who's a, a dark, sinister thug, and his friend uh uh Ricky, played by Giovanni Lombardo Radis, and they basically are invited to like this um these young rich kids party and david hess while he's there he kind of gets the feeling that they're kind of looking at him you know kind of like in a weird fetishistic we you know we invited some working class guys to a rich party and you know he starts to terrorize them a lot of uh, sexual assault and harming and whatnot and uh you know have no fear you know he gets his come up in the end so you know don't worry he's not still out there but um <laughs> I mean, David has star power is very real. You know, I, I already mentioned uh, Last House on, on the uh, the left, and, you know, he's kind of playing a similar role here on House on the Edge of the Park. And, uh, you know, it's a real nasty movie. Um, you know, released... I guess this didn't get released till 84, but it's made the same year as uh, D.O. Dotto's other movie, Cannibal Holocaust. You know, he makes some brutal films, and he doesn't really <laughs> shy away from them. And uh, I don't know. I just... I was looking for something real nasty and bleak, and I got it. Damn, Mike, have you seen that one? Yeah,
1: it's a classic, great film. Damn. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta check this guy's stuff out. I haven't even seen *Cannibal Holocaust*. I'm always too scared.
0: Yeah, my brother, my brother doesn't really watch movies or whatever. And but I got a random text out of out of the blue like three months ago. He's like, "Hey, Malcolm, just watch *Cannibal Holocaust*." <laughs> I was like, that's sick. Like, that's <laughs> oh, that is <laughs> sick. Big respect. Like, You're only you...
2: going to watch one movie. That's the
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I think it's a great choice. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you have a few stories
0: like that, like showing people who
1: don't really watch movies, strange ones. But... I
4: didn't
0: even recommend this. To... He, he found this on his own. Nice. You know? it's kind of like uh oh, yeah no,
1: didn't you watch a
0: brisson movie with him once no this isn't that's my other little brother oh, he yeah okay. he, uh, he never he only watches like red leather or i don't know like what like those videos that like make uh, fun red, of movies red leather media i i say that but i don't know if that's them or not to hmm. be honest red leather media that I, if he was watching that stuff i might watch it with them. <laughs> it's but, but, just um, eddie murphy and <laughs> Ron. <raw. laughs> uh, 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 uh. <laughs> great great stuff there but um no yeah he was just i don't know i think as as a you know he just wanted to get you know connect with me so I watched pickpocket he said he fucked with it so That's big awesome.
1: ups shout out to the bursan heads out there shout out to
0: my family i love my family jt what about you um i watched a
3: great movie on tubi this week nice. it was the a people's
1: streaming service
3: a uh dtv uh toby hooper movie Uh, Crocodile uh, from 2000 which like I uh, I I was like when I saw that it was DTV I was ready for that feeling it's like a very simple uh, story about some teens that they're like going on uh, like um, they're they're, like somewhere in in California and they're going on like a hangout like sort of trip they're gonna get fucked up early on they like encounter like uh, some cops who are like uh, who are very uh, aggressive about their beer drinking and so these kids uh, they they have like a like a houseboat rented and when they're docked at one spot, they, like, find uh, a nest of big crocodile eggs. And, of course, in classic youth fashion, you're just going to fucking destroy them. Just wail (laughs) on them. Just take those fucking eggs. Do whatever you want. And then one of them takes one of the eggs and, like, puts it in uh, the friend's backpack. And this sort of instigates this, like, uh, big crocodile that supposedly existed uh, from, like, uh the early 20th century called flat dog which is <laughs> is such an awesome name for a big mythic crocodile that is awesome and so um flat dog starts just like fucking up these teens and like gets them stranded and i, I don't know they're like it was weird like reading a little bit about this because it was like on i think like the 25th like anniversary of uh, like Texas Chainsaw, I think when it was in production. And that was like, apparently like on Hooper's mind to a certain extent, which I don't like, I'm not sure I like really particularly see. I mean, there's some really cool stuff with like, just like the history of the crocodile, like the teens sort of being ignorant of that and like sort of disregarding like American history and just being like, I don't know, uh, shitheads plays into it and then there's this uh older man who's been hunting this croc for years and it's killed his pappy and his pappy before him it's just like a really like plainly told um sort of good scary movie um there's some like very wonky like early cgi like the croc effects are like a mix of some practicals and then just like Like really bad CGI, but in the most endearing like DTV way possible Mm. where it just like oscillates in weird, like unnatural movements. But I don't know for like this type of production. It was exactly what I wanted and it was so fucking cool. It's uh, a lot of I mean similar to what we're talking about with uh, Teenage Werewolf where it's like the early first half is a lot of just vibing with the youth Mm. and uh, it's a great time uh
1: mike is there anything you've watched recently that you want to tell us about
3: yeah and i, I actually just wanted to note uh,
2: about crocodile that i have i wrote an essay on eaten alive and crocodile that's coming out in the first like comprehensive academic book on toby hooper that comes out from university of texas press this june it's Ooh. called american twilight and that's uh, great
1: that's uh, awesome.
2: I'm really excited about that book. So when you mentioned Crocodile, I, I've been thinking about that movie a lot recently because I I was uh, yeah looking at it in alignment with Hooper's other Croc slash Alligator movie. Hell yeah, Love Crocodile. Um, I yeah I've been watching a lot of uh, West Craven recently to prepare for. Um, that upcoming podcast episodes
1: is that one with our uh, our sister podcast Hotbox the Cinema? Uh,
2: no, actually, although I do have an episode coming up on Hotbox, we're going to be talking about the recently deceased Stacy Title.
1: Oh, RIP. okay, okay.
2: Yeah, um, actually, I I, I watched um, all of her films recently too, and I rewatched the Bye Bye Man um, in the unrated version, which is on Amazon Prime, and it plays. Significantly better, although I already mm-hmm. liked the theatrical cut. Um, but in terms of <clears throat> first viewings for Wes Craven, uh, I just saw Deadly Blessing for the first time. and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Um, a lot of people talk about it as a kind of uh, bridge film between uh, his early kind of hardcore realist or quasi-realist horror with Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes to the more elegant, um, fantastical horror that he's exploring in things like *A Nightmare on Elm Street*, so this film um, kind of tows the line between those two worlds. Um, it's it's very gorgeous. It's um it's it's quite slow in terms of plot, um, but it it has almost a, a Malick-esque approach to place and setting, um, and I just I thought it was. Surprisingly great because it's not one I hear as much. uh, I don't hear as many people leveling love toward Lee Blessing. So, yeah,
0: yeah, no, that was just stand up for me. No, yeah, I was just going to say, like, yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that, but I remember being kind of taken back by it, just kind of, you know, seeing his other movies, but not really seeing, you know, one like this that was in a much more slower and kind of, yeah, very lushly photographed, too. Yeah, so yeah, it's, I, I rate it amongst, you know, You know, maybe not top three, but it's, you know, it's up there. It's in that upper tier for me.
1: Damn. I got to check that one out. I've still only seen maybe six, six or seven of his movies. I've got a lot of blind spots to fill, but he's one who I'll I'll rewatch a lot too. Mm -hmm. Like him, Hooper, Carpenter, guys who I went so slowly through their filmographies because I could just rewatch the movies over and over rather than go to the next one right away. You know? (laughs) Uh, save
0: some for later in life.
1: Exactly. Gotta <laughs> yeah. save some for dessert. That's why I haven't watched the the late, late Carpenter uh, TV work. Uh, I've only seen up to uh, Ghosts of Mars, I guess, chronologically. I'd watch something this week, too. I, I actually watched... God, I can't believe last week I talked about TV, because that's how little movies I watched because of all these reading I had to do for school, but... uh <laughs> I watched a couple classics, revisited uh, Manhunter, loved that. But uh, then I then I watched one of my biggest Hong Kong blind spots and probably my biggest blind spot in John Woo's filmography. Uh, I watched Bullet in the Head, finally. That's another director. You know, I've seen A Better Tomorrow like four times, Hard Boiled four or five times, The Killer a couple <sighs> times, you know. Uh, God, hard target, so many fucking times. But uh, it, I'm just always like savoring the new experience. And bullet in the head, absolutely delivered on what I wanted. Tony Long, Jackie Chung, and uh, Wise Lee are, you know, three best bros ever. And it's like uh it's kind of like a deer hunter riff. Uh, it makes some major departures in the plotting, of course. Uh, rather than pondering life like uh, the deer hunter that night after the wedding as they do like on the factory grounds when De Niro's naked. And uh, this one, they they commit a murder the night of the wedding. And so instead of going to Vietnam as U.S. citizens, they're they're in Hong Kong and they just go to Vietnam to escape Hong Kong because they're murderers, but they got to stick together, you know? Uh, and they're thrown into the conflict as outsiders rather than Americans. And it's such a strange dissonance to see just a brutal Vietnam War movie staged by John Woo in the background of these three guys just trying to navigate like survival kind of. And it's kind of like the deer hunter in that case, because the deer hunter also was in its, you know, Vietnam portion, at least uh, such an intimate story of these guys with the war happening around them. But this one, I feel like is even more just about the connection of these three souls over time and how they're so, you know, drastically impacted by war. Uh, You also have, I believe it's Simon Yam who plays kind of the analog of that Frenchman uh, who get, who like pimps walk in out into the, the Russian roulette game, you know? Uh, And he, throws a wrench into their friendship and he plays that role so gloriously like dirt baggy it's just great uh and John Woo's like melodrama I think has never been stronger I might prefer some of the other ones for pure action although this one I mean oh my goodness seeing Hong Kong style gunfights at their peak in the setting of a Vietnam war film is something i never thought i'd really see like that uh but the the melodrama is so strong here uh in that you know three way male bond uh it's it's just such a remarkable film so every, everyone should watch bullet in the head if you haven't And we're back, unextended clip. We're talking about Ken Park, the 2002 film by Larry King. Oh, I almost said Larry
0: King. Rest in peace to the King. This was directed by Larry Clark. Eddie, just wanted to correct you there, but we do want to... You messed up. But we do want to give a dedication to the King. We were talking about him off mic for a while. Uh, Rest your soul, man. Have a nice afterlife.
1: I hope the bagel establishment thrives in your absence. <laughs> <laughs> but uh Larry Clark and Ed, Ed Lachman. Uh now Mike or uh I almost called got <laughs> Mike or Malcolm or JT. Uh, do any of you know about the the co-directing associations with Clark anything like that?
0: Well, I well he, I kind of. I know well I know Lachman's you know, usually a cinematographer. Oh okay. And you kind of get his uh Kind of, and if anyone's seen Dark Waters out there, you kind of get some similar like green sheens mm-hmm. that you get here in green, uh, Kent Park. And in terms of like the Harmony Corine screenplay, it seems like, um, and he even notes that like the stories are based off of like Larry. Harmony has uh, kind of distanced himself from it. He's not. He didn't like disown the film or anything. Maybe he did, but I I don't. But he, I think he kind of said they kind of shaped his script more to his liking. So I think mm-hmm. this is. This is pretty Clark, as far as I could tell. And I know two of the previous um, non professional actors, Tiffany Limos and uh, uh, the guy who plays Claude, mm-hmm. were in uh, a previous production he did called Teenage Caveman, which I checked out recently oh, okay. and which was also very good. So that's the info I got.
1: Uh, Mike, any thoughts on Larry Clark as a filmmaker at large before we get into this one? Uh, why why you gravitate toward his work? Yeah,
2: I mean, he's just a big influence on me in general. Um, I, th- I I actually, it's interesting to hear that you originally paired Rebel Without a Cause and Bully, because that was actually a double feature I was thinking about in terms of <laughs> influence. On this novel, And then I thought, okay, what's a different 50s teen movie and different Larry Clark film I could pick? So, yeah, <laughs> Bully, I think, is, is uh, you know, one of my favorite movies. That's actually probably one of my most watched movies, oh, uh, wow. Bully. Yeah, for whatever reason, uh, my older brother and I, we used to always watch Bully. It was just, like, one of the movies, if we couldn't think about what to watch, that's the one we would put on.
3: Um, <laughs> a
4: nice but, yeah, comfort I mean, form. like...
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, kids, uh, Another Day in Paradise. I, I I, love all of his work. I love his work as a photographer as well. Um, he has a collection called Tulsa from 1971. Um, that's just these really um, unflinching looks at his friends. A lot of them were um, drug addicts. And it's a lot of just like really visceral images of intravenous drug use and People living in pretty um pretty dire conditions and uh his his uh kind of unflinching eye for sexuality, especially youth sexuality, formed really early. Um yeah, I just I think he's I think he's great. Um, one of my favorite filmmakers.
1: Yeah, I mean I've only seen uh, Bully in this and I'm definitely taking more of a liking to him now. I mean I liked Bully quite a bit, but I, I really loved this one and I feel like maybe if I had any reservations about his depiction of youth sexuality, uh, by now it's like, well, if I don't buy in, I'm just not going to be able to, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, even understand his movies. Uh, but I I was really taken with how like sensitive the relationships were portrayed, like the relationship uh, between Sean and the mother of his girlfriend, Hannah. Uh, just the slow long drawn out process uh, of like foreplay before they have sex and the sex itself isn't even depicted is so strange and like I don't know just feels so I don't know forbidden I guess Uh, like it's just endlessly compelling in so many different ways both the content itself and the decisions that Clark and Lackman are making with the camera, even if it is set up in a fairly like stand, like two camera setup, cutting between two angles, uh, the choices in the cuts even feel so precise. And the way that he frames the particular body parts is always very interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, almost like uh, what movie was it that we watched? Oh, A uh, Lover Boy, where Carrie Fisher's character. <laughs> Takes pictures of body landscapes. She, you know, yeah. does those close-ups. There's like that type of art is on display in these, where it's just like these discrete bodily forms that are just like lines of skin blending into each other. The occasional close-ups like that, where you don't really know what you're looking at, but it's beautiful, you know.
0: Yeah, I was I was looking you know, at a short interview Larry Clark gave, um, you know, about this movie, and you know, it's interesting you bring up close-ups because he was kind of. <laughs> Against using close-ups for like emotional punctuation at least or something He was talking about getting in this film and you know the two camera setup makes sense because I don't know he's you know Using the non-professional actor. he's kind of going for you know something real here and you know you're talking about like uh, You know he often depicts teenage sexuality and that's often you know criticism levied against him and I you know what I was talking about earlier in the episode and what you brought up, you know, just now it's like, yeah, these, these relationships are really sensitive, but you know, also it is like, you know, as you know, people were mad at Stephen King for showing off brands or whatever in his book. It's like, these are the real, you know, struggles teens face with today. It's mm-hmm. not the fifties mm-hmm, anymore. Definitely. People aren't clean cut. Teens are on drugs. Teens are, you know, having sex, you know, they're having weird sex, <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, and there's complicated feelings, you know, about all that and how it's depicted, and so yeah, I, I mean, think I think Clark's goal here is just kind of to give these teens the same empathy that maybe the the fifties pictures provided.
3: Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, or sorry, continue with what you're saying, Mike.
2: Oh, sorry. I I just wanted to note. I I think that's absolutely on point. And in terms of um, Clark's lineage, like he always cites Cassavetes as the first filmmaker who re- who really captured his imagination um so he's thinking about the way Cassavetti's kind of tore back um i i turn often to this stephen king scholar talking about the duty of horror in peeling back the pasteboard masks of appearance which is something that i strive to do in the genre and i see larry clark doing that in terms of the way he's dealing with um suburban milieus and and teenagers inner lives so that, i think that's what he's doing exactly he's, he's kind of like he's showing us what we're not accustomed to seeing but what is in fact in in, in most cases, like in some cases there's a kind of um i guess genre codified exaggeration or elaboration or fantasy but a lot of it is just real you know
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah in terms of representing like the rea- like the horrifying like reality of, like, suburb life and, like, trauma and abuse that happens with, like, teenagers. I think a lot of times in the teen movie genre and, like, horror, a lot of it will be, like, oh, we're revealing, like, the uh, seedy underbelly of the suburbs. And it's like, oh, this is, like, something that, like, nobody knows is really going on. But I don't feel like that's true to life. And I feel like what's really successful about uh, Clark's film And, like, also, like, your book, Mike, is that it's, like, teens know and are aware. I mean, at a certain point at that age, you're, like, very much so aware of the fucked up things that are happening around you. Like, Mm -hmm. you know if, like, your friend's dad is, like, beating them or whatnot. I don't know. I think it's disingenuous to be, like, oh, we're pulling, like, we're pulling out the curtain and we're showing you what's actually happening when it's, like, I, I don't know. If you've lived it, you're more aware of it, and you know yeah. that trauma yeah. is there. If anything's mm-hmm.
1: played for shock in this movie, it's formal choices, like using yeah. the close up on mm-hmm. a, a young boy's balls or whatever, or the cum <laughs> shot when he's jacking <laughs> off or whatever. Yeah. But like, uh, it's normalized in a way that could obviously be read as cynical such as when tate is you know fully jokerified by the end of the movie and covered in that blue sheen with his grandparents blood on his face you know uh it it could be drawn a comparison to someone like lars von trier like one of these art house provocateurs uh because of how like dead in the eyes it's played but I feel like it's still just committed to the same style of realism as the rest of the situations that are depicted
0: in the movie. Mm. Yeah, it's just a more extreme situation. It's more mm. of an extreme tale. And I, I you know as as much empathy there is, I I think Clark does he does tend towards, you know, a more severe. He does like he knows what he's going to present is going to shock a little bit and he plays mm. with that to a fun extent. Like I think I don't know, like when we pan down to the post ejaculate penis that's clark kind of you know playing with that expectation it's like yeah are we gonna see it like what's you know we've been going through this like up and down shot of him jacking off between his face and his penis like are we gonna see the finish clark gives you the finish you know what i mean and it's I, i i don't see any shame with you know trying to balance those two things yeah you know you could want to shock a little bit maybe that gets people's attention you know
1: Yeah, so this film just kind of moves between these four uh, characters and the supporting characters around them uh, within this Southern California town uh, of Visalia in like Central California, about about 150 to 200 miles from here, although they do come down here to steal a shot in North Hollywood (laughs) at Circus Liquor. I'm not sure anything else here is shot in Los Angeles, but they did come to JT's neighborhood to steal a <laughs> shot at circus liquor, one of the most iconic liquor stores in cinema history. But it is very embedded in that central California's like, I would even say post suburban rot where yeah. it is that like inevitable death of everything around them. And like the, sur- the suburbs that they're living in, they're like 60 years old at this point, they've su- survived like two generations of, veterans and like uh you know conservative rulers and it's it's a really bleak place to live but it's also not like misery porn or whatever it's kind of just a hangout movie of people who live in the very desolate uh rot of what's left of suburbia i mean
0: it's it's like uh it's like the intro says with the picture you know it's kind of a boring place but when we get together we can have a little fun sometimes. Yeah. and uh
1: I mean, hey, that's what it was like growing up here. <laughs> I think a lot of people that didn't grow up in the big cities can feel that, you know.
0: Yeah. No. And yeah, I, I do kind of like this location of, you know, Central California. It does seem like, you know, a very conservative place to me. And like a lot of these scenarios, you know, you have the over-religious dad or like, you know, the, ste- you know, ste- Claude's stepdad, you know, he's kind of, you know, wants his son to be like a you know, a blonde haired football player and, uh, you know, th- those situations and kind of how they are just decaying and they just do not work anymore. And they're kind of upended. I mean, kind of, you know, the, what do you call it? The, the boy who has, his, has sexual relations with the mother and both, you know, the, um the mother of his girlfriend, you know, that's kind of upending that traditional suburban, suburban masculinity, you know, her, yeah. her, her husband's a, you know, big, hunk of meat football player, you know, even still. And like, I love that scene where, uh, you know, the boys leaving the house finally and Lackman and Clark kind of frame him as like a a tall giant. And, you know, you have this young 15 year old boy toppling giants. It's kind of, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. I I think that scene with Sean and uh, the family uh, of his girlfriend is very interesting because he still has a bit of that dynamic he's still scared of yeah. the husband you know it's still mm-hmm. the girlfriend's parents from teen werewolf where you know uh, he's like put some meat on those bones you know <laughs> <laughs> and but at the same time it's like well you know little does he know he's having sex with his wife uh but even the wife cops, it, it's like you know look i love my husband i just have sex with you you know yeah. uh because it's You know, the early 2000s. Is that what was going on? (laughs) I was like, am I missing out on all this? (laughs) Anyway, so there are these four main characters. Sean, who I described already. Um, Also, he, you know, beats up on and tortures his brother. And uh, their mother is, like, very young. Uh, And then there's... Claude, who you said is like the the father wants him to be like a football player. Instead, he's a skater and just has to deal with his abusive father and his pregnant mom who makes him clip her toenails. Uh, You have Peaches. Peaches has the
4: nicest peach smell about her. She's a real woman. Her mom died when she was a little girl. She looks just like her. Peaches used to take ballet class and all the boys would watch through the window. Sometimes she would let us watch her get undressed.
1: Her father is like this crazy, mourning, uh, very Christian man uh, who, yeah, just visits the wife of uh, Peach's late mother every day and is very protective of her despite her, you know, uh, penchant for sexual exploration, shall we say. Uh, you also have Tate who lives with his grandparents, and he gets really mad because they cheat at Scrabble. and well, uh, Folks who hasn't been there,
0: uh, t- I imagine a, a few Tates might be listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I knew a few Tates growing up. That's like
3: the the early dead inside, sort of irony poisoned like yeah. kid. Like that's uh
1: who just is abusive toward their parents or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I had a friend
3: who would like I, I freak a out at their strong. mom and yeah. just like. Damn, why do you take that? Like yeah. <laughs> that is
0: rough. Yeah. yeah. i might have tated out of my youth, but I was always I was never never to the parents. Never yeah. to the parents. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Just want to clarify to the listeners. <laughs>
1: Uh, you do get a very touching scene, though, after he gets in a huge fight oh, yeah. with his grandparents where Tate goes outside and is just sitting on the uh, on the sidewalk very sad and the young girls from the block are playing uh, jump rope outside and he just kind of joins in and hangs out with them for a little bit.
0: No, it feels like each character in this movie kind of gets like a very introspective type scene and they're all very beautiful. I mean, I love... I love the scene where Claude is, you know, smoking with his friends and kind of talking out his problems mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, you know, they're very earnestly replying, you know, in the way that they think. And then, you know, one of his friends kind of details, you know, struggles, you know, he had with his, you know, father being in jail and eventually passing away, not being there for him. And kind of just gives you... A, I don't know. It's just it's it's a very touching humanistic scene, you know, that just considers everyone's pain in the room.
1: That that scene really took me aback because stylistically it was like, okay, so he's doing more single shots than really the rest of the movie. This is all just pretty much insane. There's like a wide here and there, but then once that kid starts telling that story, it really just feels documentary-like, yeah. like as if he's a talking head in a documentary telling the real story of his life, which, as a non-professional actor, he may as well be, and it's it's a really touching scene uh, to shift to that kid's perspective after starting with, you know, uh, Claude so what to very your dad? rightfully kind of like it's us, just
4: kicking it, and these cops like hit him up and fucking pretty much framed him, went to prison, never been to jail or anything, stayed there for like three and a half years, came out and fucking tried to straighten his life out, fucking got us like a pad and shit. And then after that, shit just kind of fall apart. Started drinking all kinds again. Turned into a diabetic. Did take his insulin. So he got fucking sick. Fucking went to the hospital. Went in a coma for six months. I had doctors stood up with just Like, yeah, he's not going to make it, you know? One day, just yeah, for
2: sure. That scene stylistically reminds me a little bit of the way um, Clark directed and shot kids,
4: actually. Mm-hmm.
2: Just formally, some of the choices he's making in that scene. I think um, the title of the film is really interesting, that the, the film is named after um, this kid who we only see twice in, in the entirety of the plot. Like we see Ken Park at the beginning of the film. He's skateboarding, he's skateboarding through this kind of, as you say, this kind of post-suburban environment. He goes to the skate park. He pulls a camera and a gun out of his backpack and he films uh, himself on the video camera uh, committing suicide. Um, and I think it's interesting that the, the film, uh, seems to locate Ken Park as the, as this kind of like ghost or metaphorical locus of the, the group. Like he represents something that, that is, um, inherent to all four of these kids. Like Tate, I think stands outside of the others. He, he's not like Claude or Sean or Peaches in the sense that we don't see, in any explicit way that there are adults taking advantage of him or abusing him um but there's something very alienated and angry and um frustrated within all of these kids i think um so yeah i just wanted to to note that the title character ken park and and we learn a little bit more about him during that really interesting book that that final sequence as Mm -hmm. well
1: Um, I really love the first scene with Ken Park because uh, although it is over opening credits, you know, he he has his earbuds in. he's skating to some oi punk. And when he gets to the skate park, though, it is this really beautiful, like graceful last hurrah when he drops into uh, the bowl or I guess it's the uh, I forgot what that's called pool. Well, no, it, it's the it's the kind of bowl where you can <laughs> kind of make a course. I think it's Snake Pit or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he he takes a couple runs on that, uh, just shredding the corners, just you know, like it's nothing. And it's kind of just this beautiful last hurrah, especially having seen that image of him with his gun to his head. Like I knew how the film opened before seeing it, so it already registered as, you know, just beautifully tragic and like elegiac his his last ride before his death. Uh, and I think the skating throughout this film is used as a really great expression of liberation, just like the car in the classic fifties teen movies.
0: Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. You know, speaking about that opening scene, I just love shots where, you know, kind of Ken gets into like this hill kind of like in the middle of the pit and kind of like, gets himself in like an island scenario and you, and you just get like a more uh, distant shot of like you know kind of skaters framing that island it's just some real good you know skateboard photography which you know clark has a you know an interest in it looks like eddie's got something i
1: i just uh, i don't want the skaters to hate me so i, I just have to say it's called <laughs> it's called a snake run not a not a snake pit no pose no posers allowed i, know, I feel you. like that's gonna go into a, some some sort of cringe compilation is me calling it a snake bit uh,
0: you know just a kind of a random thought that's kind of out of uh, order but you know just to kind of maybe you know try to see some of the kareen in this movie kind of that scene we we're talking about where claude you know was smoking and expressing his feelings to his friends kind of reminds me of this one scene in julian donkey boy where we kind of i don't know visit some sort of institution and we get like a freestyle rap from like a this albino kid and i don't know it just has like kind of the the same grace and i feel like the stuff where like they're watching like jerry springer on tv that's like kareem to a t like right after "Mm -hmm."
1: malcolm and i had been watching jerry springer's latest effort baggage throwing it back to the classics (laughs) so glad to see our friend (laughs) uh but it is yeah that scene could be read as like two on the nose or ploying of like this you know a very condescending look at a working class americans being these people who watch racists on jerry springer and drink while they're pregnant it's like these dumb poor americans you know but uh, i i feel like clark builds a real enough world around it to result in these characters being a product of that environment.
3: Yeah, I also I mean mm-hmm. one thing I we really like played up his sense of like sensitivity to the situation, which I think is really powerful, but also like to prevent it from like swinging in like the opposite end where it's like too like too easy on like uh suburban kids and it's like obviously like there's sort of like in the hierarchy of suffering, you could be uh, like off a lot worse. <laughs> And I think, like, uh, Clark knows that, and there's, like, some sort of, like, a lot of the humor, I feel, like, emerges from that. I mean, they're, like, Sean asking it, like, can I eat you out? Like, is my dick bigger (laughs) than your husband's? Like, that type of stuff. That's all really funny, too. And then I think, like, in a direct comparison to, like, how, like, yes, all of these characters are experiencing, like, very real, like, uh, trauma from like suburban alienation like when Tate is drawing like racist slogans on starving African children that like I don't know definitely brings that point out as well where it's just like it is like their pain is real but like I don't know I think he will undercut it and yeah and, at points
1: yeah i think malcolm your old letterboxed review of this was that alan clark predicted 4chan culture by having tate draw captions over the starving african children so yeah, yeah. that was on point larry
0: clark and then pd-187 oh, oh sorry, sorry yeah pd-187 had to hit that knowledge with me and Show me some punk forty fives where they're doing the same thing, but wow, <laughs> punks punks are a pretty racist I, genre.
1: Yeah, punk has a lot of races. There's a good punk too, but there's a yeah. lot of racist punk. Anyway, hey, all the all of the good genres have a lot of bad stuff. Let's just say that
2: <laughs> the Tate stuff actually feels the most Korean to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Just the way it's um, engaging with irony and this or this kind of like uncomfortable dissonance or oh, dissonance and overlap between um, irony and sincerity. I think uh, Corinne plays with that, um the, the tense territory between those two, um, I guess you could say qualities in a lot of his work. And I think the Tate character brings that out really well. Um, like there's, there's something kind of horrifically really horrifically funny about a, a lot of those oh takes. yeah when he Absolutely.
3: refers to it as working <laughs> when he's drawing that it's like no i'm working <laughs> Like <laughs> that is really that's true.
1: so corinne isn't it? that's so corinne also I, I have to say the the weeds booking scene that we've uh, applauded so much already i will say that uh, the orangest bong water I've ever seen. Like that—that's the grossest <laughs> part. Oh yeah. No, I No, i feel
0: like the yeah, you know, Linking Tate and Kareen makes total sense, and like kind of like I don't know, like Kareen's fixture of kind of like. Um on like kind of like I don't know quote unquote garbage TV Jerry Springer or like him jerking off to like women's tennis and kind of like the 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 audio overdub of like how the woman kind of sounds like she's moaning yeah over it you know I you know was that? Did you guys notice that, or is that just my imagination? I don't
1: know. Whoa! whoa wait, sorry. Repeat that.
0: <laughs> well, like in the in the, the, the scene? tennis grunts. Yeah, like the sort tennis of playing
3: like it's like sex. Like yeah. they're like fucking. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. I, that's there. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think Clark might cut out uh some more. Yeah, he probably isolated the soundtrack a bit more. But yeah. it is uh, it's something that's been remarked upon <laughs> quite a bit. I know. Uh, I'm sure in our listenership, there's some Steffi Graf fans out there who can write in, or some, uh, <laughs> some <laughs> Maria
4: Sharapova uh,
0: fans out there who can write. Know. in Sounds like you know more about this than I do. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Uh,
1: Look, I'm I'm just talking about, you know, multiple-time Grand Slam winners. This is basic sports. (laughs) (laughs) So before... Uh, Claude's climactic scene when his dad abuses him uh, sexually we see his dad have this night out with his buddy where they're just like trying to get pussy and they drive you know maybe they really did drive to North Hollywood 150 miles they're just taking a night out that's like they could do that in like an hour and a half probably Uh, come down to LA to get you know prostitutes that makes sense almost kind
0: of kind of a (laughs) long way out almost
4: makes sense almost (laughs) makes sense
0: (laughs) no i mean that that seems great because uh how bleak how bleak it is it kind of reminds me of this uh my favorite Dangerfield movie easy money where him and uh pesci would kind of cruise around and get fucked up and whereas that has a more lighter tone to it this really just show you kind of like the bleakness of uh you know, of a, a non attentive husband who's, yeah. you know, doesn't do right by his children or wife. And like, you know how it ends with just with like, you know, his his other uh, sleazy counterpart Shit. being
4: like I wouldn't even mind fucking my wife if she wasn't so goddamn wretched.
0: Just a complete disconnect from uh anything decent.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh the dad also has his, you know, grace moment before his fall when he's in the bathroom uh, in one tube, out the other, drinking, just chugging a beer while pissing without it. <laughs> just one of the most insane things, uh, which I, you know, you can only laugh about it so long because of what happens immediately after. Probably the most horrifying thing in the movie, uh, when he does, you know, uh, you know, molest his son. And uh so Claude, you know, fights him off, gets out of there. And uh, everyone kind of has their pretty low point Uh, like including Peaches getting caught with uh, you know by her dad in a situation having uh, kinky sex with her boyfriend and Sean having to sit through that miserable dinner where even though he's having sex with the mom he's essentially getting cucked by the dad (laughs) just by being like a real man kind of and Tate uh, well kills his grandparents but Clark still gives you that that beauty at the end where we get an extended like threesome scene. And I don't don't even know what to say about it. It it really took me aback because of the way sexuality had been portrayed as kind of an exploration and a taboo before. And then this just feels like these kids are in their groove. I know what they're doing. I mean,
0: this is one of my, like maybe my favorite scene of Clark's filmography just because he does play with like kind of like the more negative aspects of sex a lot of the times and here we just get a full-on cathartic sex scene that just seems seems like a vision of utopia and like it, i love the way it's like even cut to and like kind of how they're talking about i don't know like greek greek ancients who would yeah. have sex all day and kind of like you know even you know like you said we've seen these characters kind of go through their darkest moments i mean i think uh of course the claude molestation scene is bad but the peach's marriage scene kind of uh uh, registers on a different kind of disturbing tone you know as well and just kind of to have like this euphoric scene you know kind of the joy and lack of responsibility of youth kind of the good sides of it how it ends out um and you do get kind of the ken park thing after but i, I also kind of like how the the joke at the end kind of ties into ken park oh yeah yeah and then exactly. we get that but a uh, beautiful scene beautiful yeah. scene
1: Mike, any thoughts on the final scene, or not the final scene, not the final Ken Park scene, but the the threesome leading into it?
0: Oh, yeah, no,
2: I think it's uh, exactly as you said, it's a kind of vision of utopia. I mean, ultimately, this is uh, more than any of Clark's films. I think uh, it's a film about how parents fuck up their kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's interesting that Tate is left out of this scene because he really is, he does stand apart from the others in the group in that way. but. Um it got me thinking about this this something i noted on this viewing is this interesting recurring idea in the film of parents seeing their children as kind of uh bizarre reflections of their spouses younger versions of their spouses like that 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 creepy wedding scene we were talking about with peach's dad or the fact that it's tiffany limos's picture uh who is um the picture of his dead wife um, or Claude's dad molesting him before that. He's always talking about how Claude looks like his mother. Um, and even Sean having sex with the girlfriend's mom, there's this weird kind of mother daughter thing going on. There's, there's this, I, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but there's, there's an interesting, um, idea here with this, um, like, uh, distorted symmetry between, uh, the the children and and these parents spouses mm-hmm. i don't know what clark's doing with that exactly yeah. but i don't know what did you guys did any of you guys notice yeah, that? Or i do mean,
1: absolutely and you you said that the dad mentions how he looks like the mother uh earlier and in that scene in between him entering the room and using the restroom he goes in and just looks at his wife and then just goes yes. back and looks at his son and i think all of those connections yes. i feel like he's actively trying to just kind of destroy those generation gaps and the power structures. And especially with ha- how you said uh JT earlier, how he's uh, I guess kind of letting the teens off the hook, like giving them the most authority in the movie kind of because it's about them. Uh, I think that is an act of kind of just trying to, uh, abolish the like nuclear family that we've seen in all of these conservative milieus you know he's going kids rule parents rule <laughs> exposing
0: kind of the per- the perverted subtext of it and kind of um yeah. you know Mr. me I watched the interview so I'm gonna mention it but uh uh, Clark kind of said this is kind of like the spiritual sequel to Kids because people were always asking him watching Kids like where are the parents at? Where are the parents at? <laughs> <He> said, <laughs> and I think his response is like they're in Ken Park. And <laughs> 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 so, um, so yeah, I think he's definitely. I think that's definitely a big theme he's working with how parents mess up their children. Yeah, quite odd. Yeah, JT. Any any final thoughts on this picture?
1: Your parents, how messed up you are. <laughs> 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 um, well, we my... Jack
0: off routines you might have
1: <laughs> Yeah we didn't talk about it Just briefly how probably the most That's the thing knowing how people Respond to films probably the most Talked about scene when this came out uh, Was where you just see uh, Tate jacking off Hanging himself with a piece of fabric Or whatever and you, you see all the Details you know
0: that's a advanced Masturbation level seven Or yeah. something like that it's very intricate <laughs> <laughs>
3: Back
1: in my day? (laughs) Uh, 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 Anyway,
3: JT? um, Well, I won't reveal any of my secrets there. (laughs) Um, But I'm giving this uh, four bullets. Um, It's a great movie. I think that, like, to go more into what we're saying there about, like, the relationship between, like, how uh, parents fuck up their kids, I feel like there's something to be said that, like, the complete absence of Tate's parents definitely play into like why i i think he's the most destructive and and, like evil of all of them i mean he has like the grandparents like filling in like something of or like parental role but they're so absent and like separate from his life i feel like probably the the worst thing you could do as a parent is just not be there at all um (laughs) expressed in that um but, yeah, no, there are a lot of things that, like, really horrifying images that are going to stick with me for a while. And, uh, I don't know, that's a testament to, like, I don't know, I've, I've just been thinking about this a lot today.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm going to give this one four and a half bullets. I, I It's even kind of higher in my estimations after talking through it. And, uh, you know, as someone who I, I kind of consider myself a Clark fan, I feel like I kind of maybe didn't realize how how, you know, kind of humanistic this one was on first watch. It might have been focused on kind of more of the the shocking details. And, yeah. that hey, they're there and they're fun and you can enjoy them. But I think they're even more effective when you pair them with these very, like, uh, I don't know, these very intimate and very, uh, um, just very well thought out and, like, sincere s- scenes. And, like, even, even more so, I don't know, like, I feel like even more so than Bully, I feel like Clark is kind of realizing... You know, kind of, you know, the famous quote that the you know a filmmaker makes the same movie over and over again. I feel like Clark kind of reaches new levels on mm-hmm. this one. But uh, Eddie, what, what about you?
1: Um, or yeah, well, that qu- I was just thinking about that quote. Sorry, because yeah. it's the the Renoir quote, right? Yeah, about yeah. like a film a filmmaker makes their first movie, breaks it into pieces, and makes it over and over again. Uh, what What's his earlier work like? clark
0: i yeah. mean I'm, i haven't seen any. isn't kids i, I oh, might I be wrong ki- but kids might be the first mike do you Maybe? know what his
1: directorial debut is uh yeah kids is his director oh okay debut. hey and,
0: and then i think it's another day in paradise then bully teenage caveman this one. Oh,
1: okay hey it makes sense then i guess from what mm-hmm. i know about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um actually I, i'm gonna pass it to mike uh mike any any final thoughts on this film and a rating
2: uh, I mean again I picked two of my favorites so maybe I'm too generous but this is a five this is a five
1: it's very often that the guest brings two movies that they give five it makes sense
2: yeah, yeah, yeah no it's it's one of my and actually on this rewatch um, I, th- I think it actually might be my favorite Larry Clark yeah. film um, I think I would have said bully for a long time but something about this recent viewing I feel like I uh, I cracked open certain things in Ken Park that I hadn't seen in it before I've always loved it but um, yeah, I think it's probably my favorite of Clark's films. His, his newest is really good too, Marfa Girl too. I was mixed on the first Marfa Girl, but he's still going strong.
1: I, I'm going to go four bullets on this one. I feel like I'll just revisit it over time and it'll grow with me. It's one that I already want to rewatch. Uh, I think the skate culture from the beginning to the dad stepping on the board to the younger brother... Uh, playing with tech decks and having a mini ramp uh, by his bunk bed, uh, it speaks a lot to the uh, you know the extreme sports culture <laughs> at that time. Uh, and look, folks, I was watching the X Games every year. I, I'm not looking down on it, uh, but I, I think that this film just goes to such extreme lengths in a way where Clark's realist style. Uh, it just has so much empathy to it that it, I don't know, it never comes off as like disingenuous, shocking. It always comes off as, as we said earlier, just as empath- empathetic to the teens as any of the great, you know, youth movies were. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to do it for this one.
0: Check out the Patreon. Yeah. We got uh, Walking and Talking by Nicole Holofcener. Is that Ooh. how you say your name? I, I always go Hall of Center. <laughs> Hall of Center. Sorry, Nicole. Um, <laughs> right. We know and, she's listening. We, <laughs> um, so if you're listening, go ahead. You know you're gonna. Sorry, sorry Miss Hall of Center. Um, you're gonna have to pay the Patreon toll of two bucks to listen to the episode, but it's well worth it. I had a lot of fun with this movie. Kevin Corrigan, Katherine Keener, '90s indie NYC. You know, maybe you're young like me. You want to work in a video store. That's never going to happen. You I want to check this episode out.
1: You know, Malcolm, I hate to call you out, but last week when we were talking about Patreon, you said it was $2 an episode, which is false. Uh, that is, That would be terrible. That would be such a bad deal. It's $2 a month, and you get the entire backlog, and you get the new episodes every single week. Uh, the new episode, as Malcolm just said, is on walking and talking. A great discussion uh, if you missed out on the, the month before that, we were talking about Michael Cimino. Season two of our Autourist sub-podcast uh, was, was quite a success. I, I fell in love with Michael <laughs> Cimino. And I was right. There's no emails, so you know. But hey, there's a bunch of emails saying new patron. So I'll say <laughs> I'll, I'll say thank you to those, but
0: I won't name them by names because JT thinks what? that's corny. <laughs> that's my new favorite type of email these days. Yeah, that is my favorite. <laughs> hey, money in my pocket. <laughs> We're a money podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the recent stock news. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, anyhow, thank you so much uh, to Mike Thorne for coming on. Shelter for the Damned is out for pre-order now. It'll be out on February 26th. You can go to journalstone.com and get it. You can also go to mikethornwrites.com to check out all things Mike Thorne. Um, and as I said earlier, follow him on Letterboxd, too, of course.
0: Essential. Uh,
1: yeah, of course. Uh, Mike, any anything else you'd like to plug? Any final words for the people before you sign off?
2: Um, well, I want to thank you guys for sure for having me on. Um, I guess one quick note is, uh, my agent and I just signed a really exciting deal with Journalstone. I'm going to, uh, there's going to be a reissue of my debut short story collection, Darkest Hours. Nice. Um, and that's going to include story notes for every story, including inspirations and process. Um, There'll be an introduction by someone really cool in the genre world. I can't announce anything about that yet. And there's going to be a section of my horror film criticism in that reissue too. Oh, Awesome. Um, Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. And then there's also going to be an all new short story collection called peel back and see.
1: Wow. Everyone should be looking forward to that. Um, That's going to do it for this week's extended clip next week. We're, we're bringing another guest back. You thought we were doing one a month. Well, we're going guest crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> our new friend, another new, see, that's the thing. December, we had all these returning champions. We had our old friends, you know. Now we're reaching out the olive branch of extended mm-hmm. clip. We're extending the clip long enough for our friends to grab it from wherever they are.
3: <laughs> Grabbing onto our gun and hopping aboard.
1: <laughs> Seamus Malik of Sali is going to be coming on. Uh he is gonna be talking about Black Angel by Takashi Ishii and Female Prisoner 701 Scorpion by Shunya Ito. We are getting violent. We are doing the Toei Pinky Violence special that we've always promised. Um I I can't wait. I'm I'm so glad that you know Seamus just went on like the biggest podcast, you know, and he was talking about like important stuff. And then he's like, okay. Now let me talk about the forbidden Japanese sleeves. <laughs> yeah. you know? That's
0: that's I think that's kind of a new niche for a podcast. When anyone wants to talk about like a dirty, sleazy, violent movie publicly, they're like We'll take it to these guys. This yeah, is the same space We'll
1: give it to the clip boys. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty
2: as charged.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we love it. We love it.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's going to be awesome. Um, oh God, I, I'm, I'm debating whether I want to say just check out Seamus' recent appearance. I want to plug the most popular podcast on the internet. Check him out. Yeah, yeah. just check out Seamus. You'll, you'll find his most recent appearance on the most popular left podcast on the internet, uh, which was fantastic. It was a great episode. Um, And yeah, so we'll see you next week.
4: Goodbye. What's some, what's some, what's something people don't know about you? I'm d- a deeply closeted gay guy. No kidding. Well, I'm not coming out though. Wait a minute. What are you revealing here today? I'm I'm not revealing anything. I'm saying I'm deeply closeted. Well, that means you're gay. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. Why would I say that? I'm deeply closeted. No, but I. That means you're very, very gay, but you don't want to come out. You're so closeted that I refuse to say I'm gay. Right. Exactly. But that doesn't that mean you're gay? Hey, 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 easy, buddy. Give a dedication to the
0: king. We were talking about him off mic for a while. Uh, Rest your soul, man. Have a nice afterlife.